Welcome to series five of Microphilosophy, uh, which started in 2011, so that makes us one of the oldest but the slowest running philosophy podcasts in the world. I'm Julian Baggini. Now, this series takes as its theme the title of my new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher. The original title concluded and went not to, but everyone at my publisher thought that was a terrible idea and I deferred. But I think the point's an important one. Some philosophers think very badly indeed, and sometimes we should not think philosophically at all, perhaps. And we'll see how much my guests agree or disagree. So joining me today are two of the contemporary philosophers I most admire, and they're both lovely human beings to boot, which is not a combination which can always be relied on. Patricia Churchland is a neurophilosopher whose website leads with the headline, To Understand the Mind, We Must Understand the Brain. Well, who would have thought that? But for insisting relentlessly on this seemingly obvious claim, for many decades she has faced many attacks, but in her work she has repeatedly shown the value of putting that maxim into practice. With her husband, Paul Churchland, she devised the position in philosophy of mind known as eliminative materialism, which has been relentlessly and systematically misrepresented ever since. She is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at the University of California, San Diego, and her books include Neurophilosophy, Touching a Nerve, The Self as Brain, and most recently, Conscience, The Origins of Moral Intuition. Lovely to see you, Pat. Very nice to be here. Thank you. Also with me is Owen Flanagan, and he is the Owen Flanagan, not to be confused with the Owen Flanagan who has to have his website called Owen Flanagan Drummer to avoid being confused with this renowned philosopher. He's the James B. Duke Distinguished Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Duke University, and he's worked on various areas including philosophy of mind and psychiatry, ethics, moral psychology and cross-cultural philosophy. Very interestingly, he was a principal in the Ethics in Action initiative with the Vatican and co-leads an ongoing initiative with the Vatican on science, ethics, happiness and well-being. And his books include The Really Hard Problem, Meaning in a Material World, The Bodhisattva's Brain, Buddhism Naturalised, and most recently, The Geography of Morals, Varieties of Moral Possibility. Welcome, Owen. Thank you very much, Julian. Nice to see you. So anyway, our format is simple. Each of my guests is going to propose one thing, either to do or to avoid, in order to think well, and then we'll discuss that together. If there's time, I'll chip in my own suggestion as well. So let's begin with Owen. What are you sort of recommending? So there's one image of a philosopher, which is kind of the person who wonders about things. That's sort of common core, I think, of being a philosopher. Aristotle says philosophy begins in wonder. So you wonder about things. And I think that's uh, sort of uh, a common sort of, why is there something rather than nothing? Why is there anything at all? Why am I here? Why am I me and not you? What is our fate? And so on and so forth. Now, these, these are natural puzzles that occur just in virtue of being a, the kind of conscious animal that we humans are. There's a road, though, you can go down that is a dangerous one, namely thinking that you, the child in you who wondered about those things, is also well-equipped to answer those questions, as it were, all by your lonesome self, by somehow penetrating into the inner recesses of your mind, your soul, your brain, and the answers to those questions will, as it were, come to you. And so I think that the sort of tactic that I've always used philosophically, and this has been whether I've done philosophy of mind, following uh, Pat and uh, Paul and people like that in terms of feeling as if in order to think philosophically accurately about the mind, the mind-body relation, as we say, what the nature of consciousness is, 
you have to pay attention to the sciences that are relevant to those things. Now, what are those sciences? The sciences of interest to people who work on mind are obviously psychology, neuroscience, sociology, anthropology, and uh, that one, you know, that basically these are not questions that can be answered without paying attention to what wise people over world historical time have come up with and said. So the idea would be, at least for the kind of problems I'm interested in, historically they've been, you know, like three M's, mind, morals, and the meaning of life. I just don't think that there's any hope for the solitary philosophical thinker who asks the questions about what is the meaning of life or what is the nature of mind to come up with those answers, him or herself. So I've always been trying to work as closely as I can with the adjacent sciences. And I think that's just, that's a general feature of what is a naturalistic approach that certainly in the 80s and 90s, people like Pat and Paul, Dan Dennett, many people were uh, pushing the idea that we as philosophers to solve our problems needed to, well, Quine, an inspiration to all of us, said that the best philosophy is continuous with science. So I think that's the sort of place that I would stake my claim. And just to give one example uh, that I've been doing in recent years and uh, is Alistair McIntyre, uh, who's 93 years old now, but at his 80th birthday, he gave a wonderful paper about the state of 20th century moral philosophy, ethics. And he said this, he said, no one would ever think that you could be a philosopher of law without knowing about law or that you could be a philosopher of sociology or psychology without knowing about sociology or psychology or anthropology. But he says, no one has ever acted as if an ethicist needs to know the slightest about, and he mentions sociology and anthropology, but he also could have added neuroscience. He says something very important without knowing about cultural traditions, other cultures through the framework of these different disciplines, we're imprisoned by our own upbringing and not aware of the varieties of moral possibility. So I think this kind of doing the lonely philosopher, right as many philosophers are, all by himself or herself, can't really come up with anything that's particularly helpful and certainly not particularly helpful to pass on to students as if it's knowledge or wisdom. Well, I mean, the way you express that, it sounds almost obviously true and unobjectionable. But I mean, Pat, I don't know what you think of this, but philosophers like yourself who did place a lot more emphasis on those adjacent sciences, sometimes you're accused of not even being a philosopher at all anymore. Is that right? (laughs) Well, yes, I think, you know, it it sort of depends on how you're puzzling about things. And and I, I tend to agree with Owen that if there is something that is somewhat unique about a philosophical question is that it's kind of going really broadly. So that it's one thing to ask about how you get from coding in DNA to a protein. That's a very specific question. It's a much broader question to say, well, what is life? And I think one of the things that in our lifetime that is really rather amazing is that a number of these really very broad questions that seem to be so broad as to be unanswerable or so difficult as to be forever beyond human comprehension, and so you may as well make stuff up, 
we've actually made progress on. I mean, we can say quite a lot now about what it is to be a living thing and how it is that life is maintained and sustained, at least on this particular planet. And likewise, I think with regard to questions about how the brain works, that we have, especially in the last 20 or 30 years, made progress in ways that you really could not have imagined if you were Wittgenstein um, or if you were in Oxford in the 1950s. And yet the progress is really quite astonishing. And it's owed mainly, I think, to, I mean, this was a point Francis Crick used to make. It's owed not to anything special about the brains of the people who were involved, but about new techniques about new instruments, new methods for actually getting data. And that has been, of course, spectacularly true in genetics, but it's certainly been absolutely true in in neuroscience. And so I I tend to agree with Owen that there is is this sort of jokey philosopher who is, you know, wearing uh, funny old clothes and mostly spends time in his cave and thinks very deeply about the nature of morality or the nature of life. And it is a joke. So if we are to make real progress on big questions, you know, we, we really have to have data. Otherwise, as someone pointed out, without data, you're just another person with an opinion. <laughs> now, that point about data, and I think perhaps a lot of people can buy into that. There's a long tradition of empiricism in absolutely Anglo-Saxon philosophy and the, the American pragmatists saw themselves as the successors of that. There's one aspect of data, <laughs> to use that word in inverted commas, which both of you have been interested in different ways. And that's actually the way people do and think about things in cultures other than our own. Oh, when you talked about you know, looking at neuroscience, anthropology, soci- sociology, I mean, how can things like anthropology and sociology help us when thinking about ethics, which most people assume to be about what is right or wrong in some reasonably or if not absolutely objective sense than in the more than opinion sense, put it that way? Yeah, no, a great question because, yes, and, you know, you raise a, a, a good question that Pat and I have had to answer for at different points in our career, which is, of course, even if the sort of model of the philosopher engaged with other inquiries, you might say, well, that's just sort of, you should do that. Yeah, that's intellectually responsible. You'd be surprised how few people do it. Um, and um, so, for example, uh, one of the things I've been very interested in recently is for a long time, I've been thinking about the following. I've never lived in angrier times than we are living in now. So it's sort of a social and political problem. And meanwhile, at the same time, I was thinking a lot about anger. I was also thinking a lot about how often we say in our culture, both in psychology and philosophy, that shame is a terrible emotion. And what I started to notice is that there's an awful lot of reflection on both those emotions and the good or harm they do in other traditions. That's just the first point. So just starting with anger, just to say a few things about that. First of all, there have been a few world cultures that thought anger was so dangerous that they really developed 2,500 years ago certain techniques. I mean, the Stoics famously said, anger can't be moderated. Angry armies, rape and pillage, Stoic armies, 
win battles. And so one starts to look at the sort of terrain in both psychology and philosophy, you'll start to see things like this, that people will say, well, the emotions are just the things we have. They're kind of ballistically set by mother nature. Well, if you look around the world, you see huge variation in what I call the norms and the scripts by which people engage in anger. So, you know, if you ask an American what they want to do uh, when they're angry, what behavioral disposition they have, they say they want to punch you in the face. When you ask a Japanese person what they want to do when they're angry at you, they say they want to leave the room. Now, right out of the gate, this shows you something very interesting about dominant theorizing in psychology and ethics. First thing it shows you is that all psychology books describe anger as an approach emotion. But at least this shows this, that kind of example. You'd have to develop them, obviously. It would show you that in some cultures, you can at least build anger, the anger repertoire, so that it actually is an avoidance emotion, which is just in itself quite interesting. And I, I think in general, once you start to think about emotional regulation or which emotions are best for flourishing, it isn't just an answer that comes out of, as it were, the nature of what some people have theorized as that circuitry. The circuitry is certainly there, but it gets molded in very, very interesting ways and gets normatively colored in certain ways. The way this would lead to help with normativity is when I have said to people, ah, I think that we're too angry right now in a host of domains. I actually don't think in the political domain, the anger is misplaced, but I think in day-to-day life, there's just way too much anger, you know, everything from road rage to whatever. And people will say, but again, they'll say, but that's the way we have anger. And if you point to other cultures, you can say there are possibility spaces here. We're doing it differently if we have reason to do it differently. By normatively, you mean concerning the things we ought to be doing. Yeah. Or would it be better for us if? Yeah. You know, one person, one good psychologist who's written about anger says, we at this time, have, and for a while, maybe since the late 60s, we've lived in a ventilationist culture where we sort of have said, you should express your emotions all the time. And that might be right. But these that's why these things are so complicated. You need to look at the way other human beings have put themselves together sometimes to see what the alternatives are for you. I mean, that's so interesting. There's so many things there. I mean, this thing about the idea of emotions and reactions being, as you said, a ballistic thing, they just set off. I mean, one thing that struck me was, again, we have ideas in our culture, the British culture, about what happens when young men drink which basically isn't pretty. Um, when you go to Spain and you discover that actually people drink quite a lot there as well, actually they don't seem to get into fights for some reason. They, they express it differently. So it's even things like that quite culturally moulded. And the other thing is there that this isn't just about how philosophers should think. Presumably these lessons spread out. So in psychology, a problem with psychology is they base too much of their data on observing Western educated intellectual white kids in universities. Um, but Pat, I mean, I think this, this also does remind me of something, you know, your work, you, you spend a lot of time looking at the brain and, you know, the brain is a brain, whether it's a brain in Japan or the United States, whatever it might be. And so on the face of it, it might seem like this isn't that relevant, but it is. Learning it has, and learning in a particular culture or with a particular family, has an enormous amount to do with how the brain then develops and the behavior um, that you see. And learning is something that, I mean, the brain, all brains are remarkably plastic. 
that is that they will change in response to the nature of input and feedback and so on. And understanding the nature of those mechanisms is certainly something that has gripped my attention for for a very long time. And it is very striking that many things that we tend to think are just the way they are turn out to be very malleable depending on where you are and in what kind of group or social context you are. Listen, I, I knew this would happen. That we'd, we'd end up talking and I'd want to talk for three hours. But let's, let's move on. Pat, what would be your kind of um, piece of advice to someone, something to do or not to do if we want to think better? Well, gosh, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I, I suppose that it's it's always a good idea to, if, if it's a big question, to kind of put it at arm's length and ask whether you have the best way of articulating the problem. Um, I think in, in my lifetime, the one thing that has brought some philosophers low is for them to assume that their intuitions about something, their hunches or their reflections, their, as they like to say, their thought experiments, <laughs> are a kind of wonderful avenue to the truth. <laughs> and so they have a kind of confidence that is wholly misplaced. And so, I mean, I think of, I mean, I, I like him personally, but I think David Chalmers is a really good case in point that the fact that he says he can imagine a zombie, which is exactly like him in, in the behavior of, in every respect, but doesn't have consciousness, shows that consciousness cannot be a property of the brain. Otherwise, you couldn't imagine a zombie. Well, that's just nuts. <laughs> I mean, saying to a physicist, wait. You say that this nothing can go faster than the speed of light? I can imagine going faster than the speed of light. Here <laughs> I go. See? You're wrong. <laughs> and nobody would, David in particular, would not say that about the speed of light. So why does he say that about consciousness? And I think many young philosophers were really misled by that example into thinking that if they could imagine a possible world in which something obtained, that is, you know, there were zombies who weren't conscious, that, hey, possible worlds can be as actual as actual worlds. So consciousness doesn't depend on the brain. And that's just pitiful, actually. Would I be being unfair to Descartes if I said that what you said is all very well, but Descartes does this all the time. That Descartes' meditations is basically an experiment in what he can and cannot imagine, and concluding that the things he you know, can imagine have a uh, different status from those that he can't, or something. Am I? Are we? Am I being unfair to Descartes here? Or I, I think we're not being unfair. We don't see that in David Hume, and when he imagines something, it's because he wants to open up a possibility, but not because he thinks that his imagination is giving him a line on. <laughs> truth to anything. So there was this time, and maybe it was owed to Descartes, when philosophers thought that conceptual possibilities could be characterized simply by thinking, and that once you had a conceptual story nailed down, then you knew what was physically possible and what was not. 
And I'm sorry, but it ain't so. <laughs> I mean, what do you make of this? Do, do we, is there too much dependence on intuitions? And perhaps put the challenge here. I mean, I can see how it'd be very easy to say, let's do away with intuitions. But No, 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 I'm not saying that. Intuit away. Just don't take them so seriously. You think that they're a pipeline to the truth. I mean, yeah, you might want to think, I'm te- I happen to be teaching Descartes this week. So, <laughs> I mean, you know, the meditations are in, they're an important piece of work, so you don't want to, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing something quite interesting. He's living in an epistemological crisis. He thinks, holy mackerel, maybe everything I believed and have heard of is entirely false. And he's he's got to sort of work his way out of that. I mean, I kind of get the project, but I, I think I would agree with uh, what uh, Pat said. The, you might want to take intuitions uh, to be starting points for hypotheses or guesses. You know, you might just say, it just seems so obvious to me that murder is objectively wrong. There must be some property out there in the universe that makes murder objectively wrong. And then I would say, you know, that isn't some philosophers take that way of thinking to be evidence of moral objectivity or moral realism. I just say that's an interesting fact about you. Now let's proceed to inquiry. I, I do agree with um, the the worry. And let's because we both like Dave Chalmers very, very much, as Pat just said. But, you know, what happened to philosophy of mind in the mid-90s after Dave was that a whole generation of younger philosophers started to publish papers about, oh, my gosh, the hard problem is really a hard problem. Well, we've known that for 2,500 years, and Dave just gave a name to it. And to have philosophers repeat that it's an unusual problem, you know, when I was writing about consciousness in the, in the early 90s, You know, I talked about different kinds of Mysterianism. There were the old Mysterians like Descartes, you know, who thought they were, you know, believed in substance dualism. But there are a lot of other people who just say things like, my God, I just can't get my head around how, you know, my technicolor experience could be explained by, you know, neuron firings. And then they just scratch their head and take that, take that as a serious confirmation of something. I mean, it's just an interesting fact about the way Mother Nature did design the nervous systems in autonomous bodies that we each have our own and only our own nerve, only our own experiences. But, you know, given inference to the best explanation from Darwin's theory of evolution and, you know, a bazillion other places, we have every reason to believe that our experiences come because we have a kind of body in a world of the sort that we have. So it just isn't productive for, I think, philosophers to spend time uh, encouraging other philosophers or their students to just keep scratching that itch. I believe that actually that itch will go away. I think in a hundred years, people, everyone will just take for granted that, of course, the mind in some important sense is just the brain in a body in the world. You use the term mysterian. What, what do you mean when you say mysterian? Well, what I, I meant by mysterian, I called them new mysterians after a uh, late 60s song by Question Mark and the Mysterians. But I forget what the name of the song was, maybe 96 Teardrops. But I just thought a Mysterian, well, Colin McGinn, for example, wrote a paper in mind, and I think it was 89, called Why We Can't Solve the Mind-Body Problem. And Noam Chomsky also around the same time referred to the distinction between problems and mysteries. So the hard problem of consciousness is just to assign it to the realm of eternal mysteries, I think is one of the things we've seen and it actually did lead to, I think, a certain backsliding because mm. if, you know, Pat's 86 book, 
neurophilosophy, all the work that Paul was doing, a lot of work that everyone, I mean, I think almost everyone, including people we would now think of as maybe not full-on naturalists like Fodor even, but everybody of that generation was taking what's going on in the adjacent sciences very, very seriously. Yeah. And I think it's now opened up an opportunity again for young philosophers of mind to not be engaged with the world, the, the world of the mind sciences. Both your points really sort of dovetail in, in, in a way they're almost like flip sides of the same point, you know. So on the one hand, let's pay attention to, um, you know, experience adjacent sciences, other disciplines, and that means paying less attention to uh, intuitions, right? And just how we think by, by ourselves. On your assessment, maybe maybe ask Pat this, I mean, is it your view that, I mean, is philosophy today still not got that balance right? Is there still too much, this reliance on on intuition and not enough attention to yeah, other expertises, data, and so forth? Well, I think the point about intuition, you don't want to overestimate it. I mean, one of the recent things that happened in neuroscience is that we have largely bought into a certain conception of reinforcement learning and the role of prediction and the role of dopamine and sort of making a a strong link between one event and another. And there was a group of, of young neuroscientists at UC San Francisco who thought, you know, maybe it isn't that uh, what the brain is doing is uh, having an experience and then looking to the future in order to make that link. But maybe instead they're having that experience and then they're going into their big, vast memory bank and looking for a possible cause. And it seems unlikely, but then what do you do with that intuition? What they did was they said, okay, let's devise an experiment with mice. And they did. And the first experiment worked. It looked like that's what the mice were doing. So then they thought, oh, well, this can't be right. We must, you know, I mean, there's so much data out there for the future looking model as opposed to the digging in your memory model. And so they devised more experiments to try to prove themselves wrong. And every time they tried that, it came up roses. And so now we have a kind of deeper understanding, because I think both there's some truth to both aspects of of the story. But the sort of moral of the story really is that these guys had an intuition. They had a hunch. And you see this all the time in neuroscience. And so then they went home and thought of an experiment to test it. And often the hunch is wrong. Every once in a while, the hunch is right. And then, holy cow, you've learned something else. (laughs) Amazing. But one of the problems, and I think this is what Owen was adverting to, one of the problems with philosophical intuitions is that they are so designed as to be untestable. (laughs) And, And hence so designed that all you can do is really fondle those intuitions and say, isn't it clever of me to have this intuition? <laughs> oh, you think that's just so much fun. And okay, that's fun. I like playing those games too. But at the end of the day, if you frame your intuition to be absolutely untestable, yeah, I'll say you're clever, but then I want something else. I want something substantive. 
I want you to you know, get off the pot. I mean, I'm wondering about, you know, how intellectual cultures affect this, because in science, there's at least meant to be the culture of you try to prove yourself wrong. I don't think that always plays out, but that's certainly officially there, right? I mean, in philosophy, is that true? I mean, again, we talked about Hume earlier, and, you know, Hume talked about when he was young, he, he found himself doubting the existence of God. And he says, he actually says, you know, I tried to sort of find all the arguments that would convince me that God existed, yeah. and I failed, and therefore I gave up my belief in yeah. God. Um, do, you, do you think philosophers are actually good at really kind of trying to prove themselves wrong or do you think they perhaps tend to become rather attached to their ideas and their intuitions and and, and rather seek for the reasons that defend them i mean obviously not all philosophers are the same so yeah no it depends on the person much depends on the person but i don't know i'll let owen i think owen <laughs> probably has a better answer to that than i i don't know if i do it's an interesting question i wouldn't yeah i want to be careful about making uh generalizations. I do think there's a, um, there are some interesting findings actually that you do find, I guess, when people do study things like the opinions of professional philosophers. And for example, I think that Dave Chalmers does this kind of work, I think with someone else, they do surveys all the time. So I'm always surprised when I see, like, let's just take ethics. I don't know the exact statistics, but a, a very surprising number of people, philosophers to me, are what are called moral realists. They believe that there are moral properties out there yeah. in the universe, something that, you know, J.L. Mackey, he noticed this about people when he was sitting in the pub in, I guess, Australia. And he said, oh, yeah, the people, when, there's a, when someone kills a person, they think that the, the badness is kind of out there in the world. And he went through some really good, interesting conceptual arguments about why that was implausible. But I, I think it is very implausible. Uh, so I'm always interested that so many philosophers believe it. Uh, I mean, there are lots of other ways of accounting for objectivity, you know, partly by just the needs of social life, the way we're wired. I mean, Patty has some really nice things in the uh, Brain Trust book and also in Conscience, you know, about how you get different, as it were, orientations towards say, monogamy among prairie and mountain voles, depending on oxytocin and vasopressin levels in their bodies. That This is fascinating. There are these initial settings, and in many environments, they'll select for a certain number, certain type of attitudes towards things. So are philosophers more prone to the confirmation bias, as they call it? Mm. Well, I would say they're probably normal in that regard. Everybody is sort of prone to the confirmation bias. But if you don't look for alternative explanations or don't look for falsifications, I mean, Patty was just giving an ex interesting example of the young neurosciences at University of California, San Francisco, who actually did in good Popperian ways say, I love this hypothesis, but damn it, it's so implausible. I better see if I can, it can show up wrong. Yeah. And I think a danger of not being for ethicists, I'll just speak for that, of not connected up with actually real world data sometimes is that they're they're too uh, enamored of a view which I I take to be just false. 
Yeah. Well, it, one, actually, one thing that I think you've both, both shown, which I think is the right way to think, is that philosophers are capable of being very fond of each other and saying that their views are nuts, which I think <laughs> is a good thing. We shouldn't personalise these things as well. So, um, David, if you're, if you're listening, there's a lot of love in the room as much as there is disagreement. Um, j- just to round off, I, I, you, you've had, you, I don't spend too much time on my own sort of contribution to this discussion, but let's just – it does sort of fit in a bit. I, I kind of guessed you would both sort of be – looking down the empirical uh, lens a bit. And I just think one thing that I think good thinkers do, and I'm not sure how much philosophers do it, is that although we are we like to be empirical, we don't, as it were, assume the facts speak for themselves. I think one good habit is to sort of, when you're presented with a so-called fact mm. or a piece of data, to ask what does it mean? So first of all, what exactly does it mean? Um, so for example, if there's lots of data about food waste, it's very interesting to say, well, what does that mean, food waste? And actually, if you look into it, it's quite extraordinary. A lot of the time, it doesn't just mean what you'd think it would mean, which is edible stuff going to waste. It's actually inedible parts of animals going to waste as well. Interesting, right? But if you don't ask that question, you assume it means something else. Where, do, where does the information come from? Because often when you trace things back to source, you realise it's a bit dodgy. And then also just what, what follows from it? Because sometimes, you know, we're presented with these big stark facts and it's kind of assumed that we all know what follows from it, you know, what should be done about it and so forth. And that doesn't happen at all. So, I mean, just, just briefly, um, what do you make of that? Well, how important is it, do you think, to, you know, not just sort of take facts and data and statistics but to really interrogate it and ask what it means what follows from it where it comes from absolutely i think it does and and i mean that's one of the the things that a lazy person avoids um because it takes time and and you sometimes have to have somebody sit down and explain in some detail the tools and instruments that were used to get the data and whether there were controls in the experiment and so forth. And if you're in a subfield, if you work on learning and memory in mice, for example, then you probably share a lot of background information. But if you work on something else, say movement in uh, in the spinal cord, then you probably don't share those assumptions or you don't know about it. And so it's always appropriate to sort of dig a bit deeper and ask for, well, how do you, how did you guys figure that out? How do you know that? So, yeah, I think it's tremendous, tremendously important, but I think it's a very natural, normal thing for humans to do. Um, I mean, I remember out on the farm, somebody would make some claim about what you need to make a plant grow and and keep the bugs off and, and say, well, how do you actually know that? Did you ever try it? Well, no, but I heard about it. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you did point out that, you know, often you don't really have the technical knowledge, but I find that it's amazing how far you can get without technical knowledge. So for just a little example today, I yeah. came across a study reported actually from Canada, actually, about how there's no safe um, level of alcohol consumption, that any everything increases your risk. I thought, well, this is interesting. So I look at the study. Now, I'm not a scientist and everything, but one thing that is very evident from the study is that this claim is made on, on modelling. 
from certain sets of data. It's not actually based on observing what happens to people over time who drink, don't drink, moderately drink. Because all those studies that I've seen have shown that actually the people who live longest overall are the people who are the moderate drinkers, not the abstemious or the heavy drinkers. So, um, you yeah, know, there's loads of technical stuff in this paper to understand, but even I can see that. So the, the, habit, the habit of questioning can get you a long way, even without the technical knowledge. Um, um, Owen? Philosophers can be very good at this asking exactly, as you said, what questions presuppose. And uh, yeah, because questions can often lead us down a garden path. And uh, we, you know, people try to ask the right questions, but, uh, you know, we know from everything from detective TV shows to, you know, uh, murder mysteries, you know, that you have to ask the right question to solve the, solve the puzzle. So I do think that's a uh, uh, important thing. And I think it's important not to be embarrassed about asking what you might think is a dumb question, because it it so often turns out that the dumb questions are actually very penetrating and everybody else has was wondering about it, too. Um, So, yeah, I said this sincerely to my students this term. I said, I have never in 40 years of teaching heard a dumb question. That's a little bit of exaggeration in the sense we were talking about earlier. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a nice story, but actually almost never in a classroom where you have a context in which any question goes, including questions about the questions. I think that what you, you know, your example, Julian, of the uh, wasted food, you know, asking what does that mean exactly? These are just, there's so many things like that that are just beautiful examples of uh, how spending some time with your question and formulating it correctly can really pay off. Yeah. I think it's, it's very interesting because I think also once you get into a certain domain, there's a certain kind of pride in being able to use technical terms properly. And I remember actually a nice example of this was um, Tim Crane, philosopher of mind. Um, you know, there's this term intentionality in the philosophy of mind. And I remember really struggling with what this meant and sort of like, getting to the stage where I thought I could use it accurately. And when he was writing a book for the general reader, he had to, came to the bit on intentionality and he realised, actually, do you know what? I don't really understand what this means. And I don't think anyone else does either, <laughs> you know. And, and so he really had to think about it a lot more. So even even these sort of like, you know, technical terms, it, it, it can be, you know, yeah. us saying, well, really? Do we know what that means? Anyway, listen, this has been a fantastic session. I've really enjoyed it. And now, I, obviously, I want people to go away and uh, buy all our books. Um you know, Pat, you've written a lot. I I would see if you agree with me. I think that if no one knows you, your work, a good place to start would be touching a nerve, the selfless brain. Do you think so? Well, I, I still like that book. I mean, it didn't turn out too badly at all. Yeah, I think you deliberately wrote that in a way that made it more approachable. And it is a very approachable book, but also full of interest. That's really, really great. And well, I mean, Owen, again, you've written on a broad range of things. But, you know, I just think that, and see if you agree with this, if I was to point, a stranger to one of your books, where do you start with Owen Flanagan? I would suggest the most recent one, The Geography of Morals, The Varieties of Moral Possibility. Ooh. Do you agree with that? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Good. Okay. So everyone's going to go out and buy your books, uh, which is fantastic. And they might even buy mine, which would be even even equally fantastic, if not slightly less. Thanks so much, Pat Church, and thank you very much, Owen Flanagan. It's been a real pleasure and a privilege. I hope you enjoyed the show. I've got more fantastic guests coming up in the series, so do subscribe as well as rank, review, share and all the usual things to help the word get round. This podcast has no adverts and no sponsors, so if you'd like to support it, why not just buy the book, How to Think Like a Philosopher, 
or go to julianbergini.com to see how you can become a supporter and receive exclusive benefits. Until next time, if nothing prevents, goodbye. <laughs>